everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Savela. Wherever you may be in this wide, beautiful, crazy world of ours, you are part of this story circle. Today I want to tell you part one of a fairy tale by Hans Christian Andersen called The Little Mermaid. Now, Andersen wrote his stories with the intention that they be read, and I am not going to do that. So this is my version, though I think you will find that I am staying very close to what Andersen originally created. I'm going to tell it in two parts. So we'll get started today. But I want to begin by sharing with you some things that happened at a gathering here in Joshua Tree, where I told this story. I recently told this story to a group that gathered here, and a very interesting dynamic emerged. And this is something that has happened before, but there were a significant number of people in the room who didn't really like the story that much or objected to the ending. People didn't really like Anderson's form of telling. They felt his story was too obvious, that his motivations were too self-conscious. And that leads me to want to say a few words about the importance of how we feel about a story or parts of a story. So I want to say something about that. But first, I, I do want to say a few words about Anderson. I mean, one of the things that's kind of tricky about using Anderson's stories is that we know the author. With most fairy tales, we don't know their origin. Now, the thing is, Anderson did not make his stories up from scratch. He was reworking stories that he knew. So this was an act of mythopoesis. You might remember that term from the podcast that I did a little while back on Naomi Alderman's novel, The Power. So he's reworking material. That's certainly no problem with him doing that. And Anderson shows up in the story probably in more ways than he intended. And that's why I want to tell you just a little bit about him. He was a very strange guy. He, he grew up in an impoverished background where he was really not encouraged to be as creative or sensitive as he was. He was thwarted in love his whole life. He never had a spouse or family and suffered greatly from loneliness and feelings of insecurity and inadequacy. Anderson always felt himself to be an outsider. And he became a social climber then who was hungry for adoration in all the ways that are hugely annoying, and yet he had charm and he had his beautiful stories. He had many royal patrons and wealthy friends, and his financial and social and emotional dependency on these people generated a lot of ambivalence in him that I think you can hear in the stories. I mean, this is a man who told stories to the king of Denmark and wrote The Emperor's New Clothes. 
Many people feel that Anderson's stories have survived because he creates a world of beauty and wonder. Beauty and wonder. And ostensibly, these stories were for children who apparently adored him. And yet, he definitely had their parents in mind. And the moral instruction and Christian messages that were very popular at the time and that many believed were necessary to good child rearing that many of us find abhorrent today, or at least very clumsy. So I'm not an apologist for Anderson or the story necessarily. In fact, I agree with a lot of the criticism of the story that came up in this gathering I'm referring to, and maybe you will too. But so let's pause for a moment to consider the value in reflecting on what you dislike The story in this case, or maybe this story in this case, or maybe some aspect of this story, and our judgmental attitudes. We certainly have a right to our opinion, and discernment, discrimination, awareness of your tastes, aesthetic tastes, and moral values is all an important part of being a responsible individual. And yet, so often, we go for validation, don't we? I think this is a huge part of our problem today. We we tend to listen to the folks who tell us what we want to hear, who flatter us or agree with us, and it's far less common to actively pursue what we find challenging or to even spend thoughtful time thinking about what provokes or even threatens us, and what those feelings and opinions reveal about us. I know that I am guilty of this. I'm in many conversations, too, where I observe this in others. If we don't like something, we just say that we don't, and maybe we explain it, but then that's the end. The the thing, the story, whatever it is, is dismissed, as if that's all there is to it. But a troubling perspective or a moment or image in a story can be very rich if you use it as a catalyst for exploration of your own values and prejudices. This is an opportunity to learn. You may change your mind. You may not. The point is, how big is your world and the realm of ideas and possibilities in which you regularly roam? How well do you feed your mind and heart and soul? And do you do this with the kind of adventuresome spirit that will lead to its growth and expansion? I had this experience of not liking this story myself. And it's premature to share the details before I tell the story. But when it first came to me, when I first heard the suggestion that The Little Mermaid was a story that I should learn, I was reluctant, although I obviously didn't know the story, and I haven't ever seen the popular Disney movie. I have, however, made a habit of listening to that voice that nudges me to investigate particular stories or themes. So I read the translation by Maria Tetar and Julie K. Allen, and Tatar's an annotated collection of Anderson's tales, which I recommend if you like Anderson's fairy tales. And when I got done reading the story, 
I realized I hated it, especially the ending. (laughs) Yes, but when I started working with it, using that dislike as a starting point, I got very excited about where the story took me. So, with that introduction and context, here we go. Let me tell you part one of my version of Anderson's fairy tale, The Little Mermaid. I invite you to relax and listen and note your response to the story and the moments or the details that grab you. These are your way in to the story right now, whether you like it or not. The Little Mermaid. If you go far, far out to sea, and even further down, down into the depths, you will find that there is much more than bare white sand down there. You will find the kingdom of the Mer people and the castle of the Sea King. The Sea King had been a widower for many years, and his aged mother kept house for him. She was deeply devoted to her six grandchildren, six beautiful girls. These six mermaid princesses played in beautiful surroundings. They had a marvelous castle adorned with all kinds of shells and pieces of coral, things that were luminescent under the filtered light that made its way down to the depths. And they had the garden, the royal garden, which was similarly full of plants and shells, and of course frequented by all kinds of sea creatures and brilliantly covered fish. Each of these mermaid princesses had a plot of her own in this royal garden, where she was allowed to plant whatever she saw fit and decorate it. The five older mermaids planted a great variety of flowers and underwater trees, if you will, and festooned their plots with various treasures. But the youngest mermaid planted only red round flowers in her portion of the garden. Red round flowers that shone like the sun and reminded her of the sun, which she could see vaguely outlined and shining its light glittering through all of the miles of water above her head. In the middle of her garden plot, she placed a lovely statue of a boy, chiseled from pure white stone, that had landed at the bottom of the sea after a shipwreck. The mermaid princesses were very happy. They had many amusements. They got along well. And sometimes in the evening, their devoted grandmother told them stories about the human world above and beyond the sea. She told them about the sound of bells ringing and birdsong. She told them that the flowers up there had a fragrance. The youngest mermaid, especially, was enchanted and fascinated by these stories of another world. When you turn 15, their grandmother told them, you can go all the way up to the surface 
and sit on the rocks in the moonlight and see some of these things for yourself. No one wanted to see this strange other world more than the youngest mermaid. And many nights she stood at her window and looked up through the depths to see the pale, pale light of the moon and the stars and the shadows that were cast by whales or ships moving in the water overhead. And the longing to see these things inspired and filled her dreams. Now, when the oldest mermaid turned 15, she was allowed to swim up to the surface. And when she came back, she had a lot to report. Her favorite moment was lying on a sandbar close to the shore where she could see the city lights twinkling in the moonlight off in the distance. She told her sisters this was the most beautiful thing that she had ever seen. The following year, the second mermaid sister turned 15, and she was allowed to swim to the surface. She got up to the top just as the sun was setting. The sky happened to be filled with clouds that evening, and they were all touched with this incredible golden pink light from the sun. The sky was filled with gold, and the surface of the water was rippling with pink and orange. And when this sister got back, she said that she had never seen anything so beautiful. The next year, it was the third sister's turn. She was a bit more daring than the first two, and she actually swam up a river to get views of the countryside, of the houses, and the woods. In fact, she came upon a group of children who were playing in the water, and she swam up to them and wanted to join them. But when they saw her, they were terrified, and they scrambled out of the water and ran away, And not long after that, a dog came down to the bank and started barking loudly at her. And so, eventually, she swam away. But she said she would never forget the image of those children splashing about in the water. The fourth sister stayed far out in the middle of the wild ocean. She didn't go into the shore. In fact, she found that when she was up in the vastness of her own watery realm, she didn't have much interest in the land and the humans. She stayed out in the middle of the ocean and played with the dolphins and the seagulls. The fifth sister had a little bit different experience than the first four because her birthday was in the wintertime. And so when she went up, she saw things that the others did not. The ocean had turned quite green with the cold, and there were huge floating icebergs in the water that glittered like gigantic diamonds. This mermaid sister sat on the ice and watched as a tremendous storm with huge rolling waves and wind and lightning came in. And she found the power and the glory of all of this tremendously beautiful and thrilling. Although she noticed that a few ships that she glimpsed off in the distance stayed away from the ice and didn't come close. Each of these mermaid princesses were delighted 
with the view from the surface for a while. But after they'd made a number of trips and done some exploration, they gradually lost interest, and they eventually stopped going up there very much, preferring the comforts of home and the familiar sights and amusements of the sea. Now, sometimes the five of them did go up together. They would go up to the surface, link their arms together, and sing. And mermaids have lovely voices. You may be familiar with sirens, perhaps the same thing. They had lovely voices, more beautiful than any human. And if a storm was raging when they got to the surface and they found a shipwreck, the five mermaid sisters went to the sailors and sang to them and talked to them and told them not to be afraid of the depths. But the men couldn't understand their words or songs. And when they arrived at last in the kingdom of the sea king, they were dead. The youngest mermaid was left behind at these times, and she would have cried if mermaids could shed tears. And finally, she turned 15. Her grandmother made her dress up and wear eight big oyster shells clamped onto her tail to show her high rank. And when this mermaid complained, ow, that hurts, her grandmother said, well, beauty has its price. The sun was just setting when this youngest mermaid reached the surface. The pale pink sky was calm and the air was mild. She saw a tall three-masted ship drifting in the water and she could hear music and other sounds of a party. She stayed around the ship, listening, curious about all the movement on board. When night fell, hundreds of colored lanterns were lit, and it was so beautiful. The mermaid swam up to the portholes of the cabin and looked inside. It was a party, all right. And as she swam around to each of the portholes, looking in and taking in the crowd and the festivities, she noticed that the guest of honor, the guest of honor was the most handsome young man she had ever seen. He couldn't have been more than 16. His dark hair and eyes shone. The mermaid realized that it was his birthday and he was a prince. When he came out onto the deck, she followed his progress from the water. She never took her eyes from his face. All of the sailors were dancing. And when they started to shoot fireworks up into the air, at first the mermaid was so startled that she dove down beneath the waves for a moment. But then she came back up and saw that there was no harm, only beauty. It was getting late, but she couldn't tear herself away from the ship and the smiling prince. At last, the party was over. The sailors took down the colored lanterns. They put up the sails to head home. And the wind began to blow. It began to blow hard. The waves rose and rocked the ship. They rose and they walked the ship, and in a short time, these waves were so high, 
that they loomed like great black mountains over the deck, and the vessel groaned and creaked, and the crew moved around frantically trying to hold on and to keep the ship upright against the storm. For a while, the mermaid enjoyed the storm and the beauty and the fury, and then lightning flashed and the mast snapped and water began pouring into the ship as it tipped over onto its side. And the mermaid suddenly realized that the ship was in real danger. She had to dodge bits of wreckage in the darkness. The prince must be in the water, she thought. And at first she was overjoyed that he would live in her watery world. But then she remembered that human beings could not survive in the water. Oh, no. The mermaid darted among the floating planks, oblivious to the danger of being crushed, until she found him. When she found the prince, his limbs were failing and his beautiful eyes were shut, and he clearly was on the verge of drowning and would have died if she hadn't held him, if she hadn't held his head above the water and let the waves carry the two of them along. She held him in her arms all night, And by morning, the storm was over. There was no sign of the ship. The prince was cold and white, and she kissed his brow and smoothed his hair, wishing that he might live. And then she looked up and saw land. Off in the distance, there was a lovely green coast and some buildings clustered by a beach inside a small, peaceful bay. The mermaid swam into the bay with the prince, went up onto the beach, and laid him gently on the sand. Bells began ringing in the buildings, and a group of young girls came out and ran down to the beach. The mermaid hid behind some rocks in the water so no one would see her. Before long, one of the girls saw the prince in the sand. She ran to get help. The mermaid watched until he was revived and taken into one of the buildings. When she went home, her sisters asked her, what marked your first visit to the surface? But she really didn't want to talk about it. Now many mornings and evenings too, the youngest mermaid swam back to the spot where she had left the prince. Time went by. She watched the fruit ripen on the trees, and then the snow fell. The seasons changed, but she never caught sight of the prince again. When she wasn't looking for him, she sat with her arms wrapped around the white statue in her garden. The marble boy, she thought, looked a lot like her prince. Finally, she couldn't bear it any longer, and she told her sisters everything. One of them knew who the prince was. She had seen him and his fine ship, too. Come, little sister, they said. Let's go and find him. We'll show you where he lives. And arm in arm, the six of them swam to the surface where the prince's castle stood. It was a marvelous place. And it had a grand marble staircase that ran straight down to the edge of the sea. Through the large glass windows, they could see 
sumptuous furniture and beautiful paintings and statues. Well, now that she knew where he lived, the little mermaid went there almost every evening. She swam closer and closer, even daring to swim up a narrow channel that ran right under the balcony of his room. She often watched him take his ship out and heard the music from his parties. The sailors and the fishermen praised the young prince, and this made her very happy about having saved his life. She remembered holding him and kissing him. The little mermaid grew more and more fond of human beings and more and more fascinated with their world. It seemed so much larger and brighter and more colorful than her own. Her sisters and her grandmother couldn't tell her nearly enough about it. One day, she asked her grandmother about human beings and drowning and death. If human beings don't drown, she asked, can they live forever? Oh, no, 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 said her grandmother. They die, and they often live shorter lives than we do. We can live for up to 300 years, and when we die, we turn into foam on the sea. In fact, we don't even have graves because, well, we lack an immortal soul. So we will never live another life. But human beings, they have souls that live forever. They say it rises up to the stars when their bodies have turned to dust. Well, why don't we have immortal souls? asked the mermaid. I think I would give all of my 300 years to have one day as a human and share in that heavenly world. Well, that's not a thing to worry about, said her grandmother. And besides, we are much happier than they are. Well, it sounds to me like we're doomed, said the youngest mermaid. Isn't there anything I can do to gain an immortal soul? No, my dear, said her grandmother. Only if a human loved you so much that you meant more to him than his father and mother. Only if you were to be the dearest wife of a human who loved you with all his heart and soul. But that will never happen. Humans don't understand the beauty of your fishtail. They think it's hideous, and they have these two pillar-like things that they call legs that they get around on. So let's forget this and celebrate our 300 years. And Grandma declared that was the end of the conversation. There was a grand and lovely party at the Sea King's Palace that evening. All of the people sang sweet songs, more beautiful than any human song. The youngest mermaid had the most beautiful voice of all, and everyone applauded her. For a moment, there was joy in her heart. But she couldn't stop thinking about the human world and the prince and an immortal soul. A deep sorrow fell over her, and she slipped away from the party. Who can help me? she wondered. And then she thought of the sea witch. That witch terrifies me, she said to herself. But maybe she can give me some advice. The little mermaid left the palace and the gardens and swam far away. The sea witch lived way out on the edge, past the churning currents of maelstroms. The little mermaid had never been there before. 
This place was barren. There was no seagrass at all, and she had to pass over these churning, swirling whirlpools and boiling mud holes. But she chose her past very, very carefully, and finally she was in the swampy home ground of the sea witch, and there there were no beautiful trees and bushes. There were only these sea polyps, these half-animal, half-plant creatures that had long, slithering fingers that they used to reach out and grab things. And when they reached out and grabbed something, they wound themselves around it so tightly. Well, that unrelenting grasp was death. The youngest mermaid's heart was beating with fear. She saw the white skeletons of humans who had perished at sea and bits of junk from their ships that the polyps were holding on to, and there were great fat water snakes slithering around. But there in a clearing was a shelter made of bones. And she thought she would have fainted from fear, but for the thought of the prince and an immortal soul. And she made it to the front door of that home. When she got there, before she even opened the door, the sea witch opened it up and said, I know what you want. I know what you want. You're hoping to get rid of that fishtail and have two stumps to walk around on like human beings. Yes, you're sure the prince will fall in love with you and that you will win an immortal soul. Well, I can help you, and uh, you're just in time, because this is something that I can only do once a year. I'll make you a potion to drink, and then you must take it and swim up to land before sunrise and drink it. There your tail will split and become what human beings call two pretty legs. You're still going to be quite graceful, but I warn you, every step that you take with those legs will be like treading on a knife. It's going to feel like burning needles nonstop. There will be enough pain to make your feet bleed. Do you think you can endure that? The mermaid trembled at the thought of this, but then she thought about her quest about the prince and the immortal soul. Yes, she said, I can can handle that. Think carefully, said the sea witch, as there will be no turning back. Once you lose your tail, you can never come home again or see your family. And the only way that you can win an immortal soul is to make the prince love you above all else and marry you. If he marries someone else, your heart will break and you will die and become seafoam. Forget the 300 years. The youngest mermaid was pale, but she said, I'm ready. First you have to pay me, said the witch, and I demand a steep price. I have to put my own blood into this potion. You have the most beautiful voice in the sea, and I expect that you plan to charm the prince with it, but you must give it to me. I want the dearest thing that you have in exchange for this potion. But if you take my voice, said the mermaid, what will I have left? Why, your lovely figure, said the sea witch, and your expressive eyes, and your courage, I hope. And so the deal was done, and the sea witch cut out the mermaid's tongue. She brewed up the potion, as promised, and handed it to the mermaid. If those polyps try to grab you on the way out, said the witch, just 
toss a drop of this potion on them, and they'll burst into a thousand pieces. But that wasn't necessary, because when the polyps saw her emerge from the witch's house with a bottle of potion in her hand, they shrunk back in terror. The bottle of potion glowed in her hands like a luminous star as she made her careful way back to her father's palace. The lights were bright. She could see her family and friends dancing and singing inside. She was leaving them forever, and her heart was full of sorrow. She blew them a thousand kisses and swam away. The sun hadn't risen yet when she arrived at the marble steps of the prince's palace. There she drank the bitter, fiery potion, and she felt as if a double-edged sword was cutting her in two. The pain was so great that she fainted. And that is the end of part one of The Little Mermaid. And that's it for me, Catherine Savela, and Myth in the Mojave for this week. Feel free to contact me if you have questions or comments about today's program. I hope you'll share this episode with others who might be interested in it. And if you find something of value in Myth in the Mojave, please join the Myth in the Mojave community on Bandcamp. For only $5 a month, you have unlimited access to all of the programs archived there, as well as free downloads of everything new I create, and you play an essential role in making future programs possible. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in next time for part two of The Little Mermaid. And until then, happy myth-making, and keep the mystery in your life alive. Music